Welcome to episode seven of the Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine, a production of the Women in Emergency Medicine section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. In this episode, Drs. Faith Quenzer and Adria Adabani interview Dr. Joanne Williams on her journey through emergency medicine. We're here today for another episode of the Women in Emergency Medicine podcast sponsored by the AAEM. We have the lovely Dr. Joanne Williams here with us today to tell us all about her experiences. Dr. Williams is a founding member of AAEM. She has been a professor of clinical emergency medicine at USC. She remains an associate professor at Charles Drew University. She's been involved in the education of medical students at USC for the past 10 years and she's been involved in the education of medical students at Charles Drew for the past 30 years. She is currently semi-retired and focusing on critical care, although I'm not sure that her definition of semi-retired meets everybody else's. So welcome. Thank you for this opportunity. So one of the first questions I wanted to ask you about is when was the first time in your life when you realized that being not only a woman in science, but a black woman in science would be an uphill battle. I remember in eighth grade, a letter was sent home for our parents to sign of what track you wanted to engage in in high school. There were three tracks. There was Secretary of Science, College Preparatory, and I can't remember the exact name of the third track, but it was more agricultural and mechanical. And of course, my mom checked off college Both my parents signed it, and I took it back to school. Two days later, there was a sealed envelope addressed to my parents that I needed to take home. And when my mother opened the letter, she was livid because the guidance counselor said that she felt that secretarial science would be best suited for me. So my mom went back to school with me the next day, took me to the guidance office. This is the first time in my life I'd ever seen my mother angry to the point where she was livid. She got right up in that guidance counselor's face and asked her, what do you mean you don't think my daughter can do college preparatory? She's going to do college preparatory. There's no questions asked. So as a result of that, I did college preparatory. But like I said, that was the first and last time I'd ever really seen my mother live it. Wow, what an experience. So looking back at your 30-something-year-old self, What would you advise yourself if you were giving advice to the Joanne Williams before she became a doctor? I think what comes to mind is what my grandparents and my parents always told us. As African Americans, you have to be twice as good to get half as much. And what you have in your heart and in your mind, no one can take it from you. That's amazing. So it sounds like your family was a huge supporter of your education and really believed in just your dreams for being more than what society and what, you know, even maybe even other people might have expected from you. And how is that type of foundation, how, how has that helped you overcome some of uh, the challenges you face later on? I think one of the most important things is that you have to have a myriad of, of interests. Unfortunately, some young people eat, sleep, breathe medicine. 
that's all they do. I have been active in my church. I sang in the choir. I have been active in my sorority. Uh, I've been a mentor to young people in the community. I've done work with the homeless. So I think one of the most important things is that you have to have a variety of other interests so that if something doesn't click in one arena, you can switch to another arena with ease. Perfect. I think I know what the answer to this question is going to be already. (laughs) (laughs) But did you ever have a moment in your career in medicine where you said to yourself, I know I can because you don't think I can? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I remember (laughs) as a resident, I can't remember the exact time and place, but the program director said something to me about he didn't think I could handle this critical case, and I just said, well, watch me. (laughs) (laughs) He he never said that again. (laughs) When I got to USC after the closing of my program, which was heartbreaking, I was there maybe 90 days, and the chair told me, we have a letter from most of the residents, and they say that you're not qualified to teach them. At that point in time, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, you are the chair. You need to take charge. But he did not. I was pulled out of the clinical areas, which is okay for me, because I focused on the medical students across the street. And by me being a county employee, my check was in the bank on the 15th and the 30th, whether I taught the residents or not. Tell me about some of your biggest supporters. Did you have anyone who was really a cheerleader, a huge supporter of you, or a role model that helped you find a way to get over some of the struggles that I'm sure you encountered along the way? My main supporter, and Lord rest his soul, he just died last summer, was Dr. William Spate. He was old school, general medicine, never finished a residency. But I remember when I was a resident, There was a patient with a gunshot wound to the face. He always wore a shirt and tie, white coat. The senior read, go get Dr. Spade. Dr. Spade came out of the the call room, cranked that patient, told the chief resident, anchored the tube. He didn't get a drop of blood on him. He was the one that told me one of the most important things that you need to do is talk to the patient, examine the patient. Invariably, the patient will usually diagnose themselves. And that is something that I've carried with me from that day to this. So Dr. Spate is one person to which I owe a lot of my success in my career. So what would you want to see change as far as, you know, in medical education? And what is one thing you think we should really put our kind of energy towards if you had to pick? I think going back to the basics, one of the things that disturbed me when I, just before I left USC, when I would see residents look at the triage note and order $2,000 worth of tests before they even talk to the patient. We have to keep in mind that now, unfortunately, a lot of insurance companies are going through those charts with fine-tooth combs. They have doctors and nurses that are reviewing those charts, and if they feel that certain tests are not necessary or not warranted, they're not paying it. And the patients are getting stuck with those bills. So I think we need to go back to basics, talking to our patients and examining the patients. In the little ER that I work, maybe one or two uh, shifts a month to keep my skills up, the nurses know, everybody in a gown, no questions asked. 
how how does that balance out in a really busy community ER where the pressure to see as many patients as in little time possible how how do you think emergency medicine physicians can balance their time I think one of the most important things is that you know your nurses and your nurses should know you hmm. if I come into the ED and there's 25 30 patients I'm going to take those charts, and a nurse is going to be behind me, and I'm going to be talking to the patients, and I'm going to be assessing the patients, and I'm going to start my workup for those patients. At my little community hospital, the director says, well, your RVUs are not as high as everybody else. What can we do about that? I said, nothing. I said, because I order what I need and not what I want. So I think that if you know your nurses and your nurses know you, they will know what course you're going to take with respect to your patients. It's perfect. And then one more thing, too. What are your dynamics with your nurses? I know that's like always been a struggle for some of us female physicians in taking the lead and being able to be the team leader when, you know, that dynamic between uh, females like nurses and physicians is, you know, in a way differentiated. Outside of USC, in all other aspects of my career, I've never really had a problem with the nurses. The nurses know that I respect them and I listen to them. If a nurse tells me, well, Dr. J, this patient doesn't look good, I'm not gonna question that nurse. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna go see that patient. I only had an issue maybe about two years ago. I hear this patient screaming and screaming and screaming. I said, what are you doing to that patient? I'm starting an IV. I said, I don't recall ordering an IV on that patient. So she comes, she tells me, well, I've been an ER nurse for 10 years. I said, well, I've been an ER doc for 35. And I just happen to be in charge, and I've never had a problem since. But I think the most important thing is if the nurses know that you respect them, you respect what they do, you listen to what they say, it's not an issue. And I think that's the most important thing, mutual respect. Great answer. Thank you. Tell me, if you can, what it means for you to be a successful female physician. What does that mean for you? Success, to me, comes through the eyes of the patients. If I have a day where I know my patients appreciate what I do and all that I've done, and they know that I've done all that I can, that's the most rewarding thing for me. It's amazing when patients leave the ER and they will find you to say thank you. Mm -hmm. That's the most rewarding to me as a physician. Did you ever want to be anything other than a physician? Do you ever have any other goals that you were pursuing or that you thought you were going to pursue and then you changed your mind or you always was a straight shot to medical school? Medical school actually was an afterthought. I was a paralegal for the Lewis Tomato Brisbane Bisgard for years. And the partners wanted to send me to USC Law School. I said, what, so I can be an associate and fatten your pockets for the rest of my life? I don't think so. <laughs> so I was looking for something to do because I did their, their, their med mal cases. I said, this is interesting. Let me, let me give this a shot. I actually applied to only two, school, two schools, <laughs> UCI and Yale. And I got into both, and my mom said, you can come home and you can live, you can live if you go to Yale. You don't have to get an apartment. I said, but mom. I would be in debt up to my eyebrows if I went to Yale. I am now a resident of California. I think I'll stay and go to UCI. And so I went to UCI, and here I am. How many black women were in your medical school class at UC Irvine? There was only one other. 
in my graduating class. There were three, I believe, in the class before me and two in the class before that. So what you're saying is there's lots and lots of black women in the whole bunch, <laughs> just everywhere. <laughs> Do you have any unsettling experiences that you're willing to share with us that came about because you're a female physician? Mainly because I was a black female physician. We were moonlighting, able to moonlight in our last year of residency, and I was working at a hospital in Sherman Oaks where there were very few African Americans living in the Sanfordale Valley at that mm -hmm. time. It was Valley Presbyterian Hospital. You get your 3 a.m. CH upper that wakes up drowning. Gentleman came in, phone coming out of his mouth, phone coming out of his nose. So I went to help him, and he says, I don't want no black bee touching me. So I sat down. Because in California, if you touch a patient against their will, you will go to jail for assault and battery. So the nurses are jumping up and down, Dr. J, what are you going to do? What are you doing? I said, I'm going to wait for him to stop breathing. Two minutes later, he stopped breathing. I intubated him, started to resuscitate him. He was waking up when he was going up to the ICU. When his wife came in, the nurses explained to the wife what had happened. She was livid at him, and she was crying and apologizing to me for him being so ignorant. But when he was discharged, she found out when I was working, and she made him come and apologize to me. And I think one of the most important things from that is that we have to learn how to judge people, not by the color of their skin, but as Martin Luther King Jr. said, by the content of their character. Perfect, Dr. Williams. Is there anything else you wanna add? Yes. Curtis Scott King said, women, if the soul of the nation is to be saved, I believe that you must become its soul. I think it's time for us as women to become the soul of EM, bring back the ba basics, focus on our patient, bring back the passion that goes with our specialty. Thank you, Dr. Williams. You have been a fantastic speaker, of course. You have many interesting stories to share. I'm so glad you're willing to come and share them on our podcast. The pleasure was truly mine. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website under resources and then publications. Join us again next episode for a new journey through emergency medicine.